Worship was great. Thank you. How many of you had trouble with that clap, though, that fast clap? I had trouble with that fast clap. I finally got on the offbeat and just started doing this. I really didn't care. You know, I mean, you're, you're here. What difference does it make, right? You know, uh, tonight we're going to talk about the divine irony. And all of us have had those experiences in our life where something is just ironic. And you look at it and you go, how strange is that? I don't know of a passage in Scripture that has more irony than we're, one we're going to look at tonight. Um, it's actually found in the book of 2 Kings chapter 7. I think your notes might say 17. That wasn't a very good chair, was it? 2 Kings chapter 7. And uh, we're going to look together at this passage. It's, uh, it's a pretty amazing story. So if you've got your Bible and are you ready? Everybody found your place. Say ready. It's about half of you. Let me tell you the key to finding a passage of Scripture in the Bible. It's not memory. It's called an index. You got it? 2 Kings chapter 7, it begins with these words. Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought too long about phrases like that. Sometimes we, we don't pause long enough to let that sink in. When he says that, remember it was by God's word that he created the heavens and the earth. He spoke the world into existence. When we read scripture, we're reading God's character, his attribute, his very words, his, his, his nature, everything about him. And we're listening right now. God is speaking. He says, hear the word of the Lord. He's speaking now, and he says, thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So he was taunting the man of God. He was saying, I don't believe what you're saying, man of God. I don't think there's any validity to what you're having to say here. Just like people today don't trust or don't believe the word of God. And they'll call into question. It's the oldest thing that Satan has done. Has God really said? But the, in fact, what we're going to find at the end of this passage, this prophecy of this prophet comes to pass. In verse 2, or verse 3 rather, Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to another, one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? Now remember, they're outside the gate. The city is under siege, and there's a famine inside the walls. They're not inside the gate because they're considered unclean. So not only are they starving, but they are also ostracized from the entire body inside of that city. And they said, if we say we'll enter the city, the famine is in the city, we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. Now therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. What difference does it make at this point? If you're going to die, you're going to die. If they keep us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall only die. And they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, and when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. Have you ever had those situations where you faced your greatest fear and there was none? I mean, we, we experience that in life, don't we? And the Lord had caused, it says in verse 5, the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots, the noise of horses, the noise of a great army, and they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against the kings of the Hittites 
the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and they fled at twilight. They left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went to, uh, into one tent, they ate and drank, they carried from it silver and gold, clothing and went and hid them. Isn't that interesting? These guys have a short life expectancy and they're hiding silver and gold. From who? The guys in the city who are afraid to come out. Ironic, ironic how this story unfolds. So it goes on to say here, when they came back and they entered another tent, and they carried some from it also, and they went out and they hid it. They probably came to the conclusion, we can't bury all of this gold. And what are we going to do with it anyway? It's kind of like when Jesus said, what are you going to do with all your treasure anyway? Why not lay it up in heaven? It's going to be a lot more powerful for you there. It's going to have eternal ramifications. Don't worry about it here and now. They said to one another, verse 9, we are not doing right. Notice how conscience sunk in here. We're not doing right in what we're doing here. This day is a day of good news, we, if we remain, and if we remain silent, if we wait until the morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us and go and tell the king's household. So they went, and they called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them... Uh, saying, we went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys, and the tents intact. And the gatekeeper called, and they told it to the king's household inside. The king arose in the night and said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the fields, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get them into the city." Have you ever noticed how people just can't handle miracles? You give them a miracle, you tell them what God is doing, and the first response is, well, there must be some explanation to that, is there not? I had a minor miracle happen to me this week, and I call minor because I went to the wrong Starbucks. Starbucks is my office. I have offices all over Orange County, by the way. People there waiting at my beck and call to serve me coffee, biscuits, anything I want. It's awesome. I went to the wrong one, and uh, my buddy Mike calls up, and he goes, uh, Are you coming? And I go, I'm here. Where are you? Are you at the one over by Sun? No, I'm not there. I'll be over there. Well, the night before, I told my wife, I need to put gas in my car. Because it was down to, I think, six or seven miles. And I'm thinking to myself, in my mind, I'm kind of doing the math. I'm thinking, okay, I've got to go all the way down in Santa Ana Canyon. I've got to turn on Imperial. I've got to cross over... I'm not sure it's going to make it. So I'm praying. I'm saying, God, I know this is like a stupid miracle because I'm lazy and don't want to walk. I mean, that's all I can think about, really. I'm, honestly, you know, I know I can walk. I can call Mike and go, Mike, I can't make it. I'm stranded here. Bring gas. I'm driving along. I said, God, I just need a little miracle here. Just kind of extend this thing. And I look down, and I'm not lying. I know now you're going to try to disregard the miracle I'm getting ready to tell you. I wasn't going downhill, I wasn't going uphill. It was flat service, because I know car guys, and they're going to go, you're going uphill, weren't you? Gages in the back. No. It jumped up to 10 miles. I got three gallons of gas out of one prayer. That's about 12 bucks. So I'm going to put an extra $1.20 in tonight into the offering, or I'm going to give a tithe off of that. Okay, now look what happens here. So there, there's a miracle, and, and they're trying to disregard this miracle. And just drop down, uh, let's look at uh, verse 13. And one of the servants answered and said, Please let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city, 
Look, they may either come, become like the multitude of Israel that left, it, left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of, of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send out and see. Therefore they took the two chariots with horses. The king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army and said, Go and see. They went after them to the Jordan. Indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons of the Syrians had thrown in their haste. So the messenger returned and told the king. The people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So the sea of flour was sold for a shekel, two selahs of barley for a shekel. And notice what it says in verse 16. According to the word of the Lord. That was verse 1. Remember that? That was the word of the prophet. The king had appointed the officer on whose hand he had leaned charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke to the king when he came down to him. Here's the irony. Lepers feast at the banquet table, while the mighty, the proud, and the secure starve in their fortress. See, sometimes we work so hard to hold on to stuff, and it's not security at all. The real security is always found in God. There's three great truths I want you to see in this passage. Here's the first one, that we need to move in the direction of our fear. Because that's where faith begins. What is it you fear most? Move in that direction. Trusting God in that direction. Sometimes what we do is we see our greatest fear, and we take the easy route out, and we just hope it doesn't catch up with us. But God says just the opposite. You have a mountain in front of you? Speak to the mountain. Say, be picked up and moved into the sea, and it will obey you. You ever gone through fire and difficulty and troubles and you wondered if God was there and what God was up to? I want to show you a little short video here. It's just about a minute or so long. But it illustrates this point taken from the book of Jude. So you can check, check out the screen here. Do you know that God has a different plan for you? You may think you're going through the deep river and you're going to drown. You're going through the hot fire and you're going to burn. God is going to let you pass through that fire. God is going to deliver you. I love the scripture in Jude that says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. You know whose responsible it is ultimately to keep you from stumbling? God's. God's. And to cause you stand, to stand upright in that day to the only God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Savior. God takes responsibility for your life. God is in control of your life. Skip God a hand. If you were inside that city, one thing was for certain, fear gripped your heart. And you were trapped inside of a city of your own making. They were afraid to move, afraid to act. They couldn't see God's hand in anything. They were under a siege. You know, there's some things that are true about being under a siege, and let me give them to you. The first one is, you live on scraps and leftovers when you're under a siege. Your life is not about what God's up to and how God's supplying your need. It's all about scraps and leftovers. And also, when you're under a siege, you start to run out of options. You see, sooner or later, they're out of food. Sooner or later, the livestock become your meal. Sooner or later, you say, what do we do? You just run out of options. But freedom comes when you get up and move. Notice what happens there in verse 5. It says at twilight, they didn't wait. And they said, you know, they didn't say, let's get up and wait till about noon and really think it through. They said, what are we going to do? They immediately, they said, get up and move. And at twilight, they moved. And the principle is never delay a courageous opportunity in your life. 
You know, the Bible says in Proverbs, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. We find ourselves running away from things that aren't there. The other thing is face your enemy, verse 5. They said, we're going to go into the camp of the Syrians. We're going to see what happens there. When we run out from our problems, they tend to get bigger, but when we confront them, they tend to get smaller. Look in verse 6, the miracle of noise. You ever thought about noise being a miracle? And yet, look what it says here. There, the noise of chariots, the noise of horses, the noise of a great army was inside the head of the Syrians. It wasn't in the head of the lepers. It was in their head. That was the miracle. Your enemies hear a sound that they cannot ignore while you remain at peace. You ever anyone say to you, I don't know how you can be at peace at times like this? Well, we call him the Holy Spirit. We call it the joy that comes from knowing him. We call it the fruit of the Spirit of God. Your enemies, why, they can't experience the peace and they can't ignore the noise. They find themselves always on the defense, always in a survival mode. There's a passage I love and just listen to it from the book of Judges. It says, they that are delivered from the noise of archers in the places of drawing water, there they shall rehearse the righteous acts of the Lord, even the righteous acts toward the inhabitants of his villages in Israel, then shall the people of the Lord go down to the gates. See what happened? They don't even hear the noise in battle of the archers. And those, you can just imagine the sound of thousands of arrows that are being fired into your camp. Isn't it interesting that in Ephesians 6 it says, you know, we have flaming arrows that come at us nonstop. And if fear grips your heart, you're going to hear those arrows coming nonstop at you all the time. But we need to recognize the Lord's timing. You notice it was at twilight. But look at verse 7. It was exactly at twilight when the lepers made a decision that guess what? The Syrians took off. You know what that is? It's a divine consequence, right? Or is it a divine coincidence? It's both true. You see, when they moved, I just really believe this. This is what I believe. I believe when the lepers made a decision to move in the direction of the Syrians, God said, I like that kind of faith. Watch what I'm going to do to the Syrians. The timing is too precise. I have people all the time, I'll tell them something, and they go, oh, it's just a coincidence. I go, well, I love them. May God give us more divine coincidences in our life so that we see the miraculous hand of God unfold on a daily basis in what we do. Why wouldn't we want to see miracles, and why wouldn't a miraculous God work miracles in our midst? I mean, do you want a, do you want a supernatural, all-powerful God who never shows up and does a miracle? Or do you want one that's just explainable and you go through this kind of machine kind of like Christianity where everybody can explain and everybody can explain it away? I don't want that. That's just, to me, that's wasting my time. I want to see God's hand. I love this quote from uh, Jensen Franklin. He said, when you're going uh, down to nothing, God is up to something. <laughs> you ever just been out of nothing? You go, well, I, there's nothing left. Might as well trust God. It reminds me of the lady that got the... Uh, a visit from the pastor in the hospital. He went in and he said, uh, you know, I've come to pray with you. And she said, oh my, has it come to that? <laughs> Have you ever noticed prayer is the last thing we do? Trusting God sometimes the last thing we do? Let me give you a second thought, and this is a, a great one when you look into the life of these lepers. When, you're great, you're, when your liability is your greatest asset. Have you ever looked at your liability, the things that, that keep you back as being the greatest asset? You know that being a leper was the greatest asset they had? Because they, where were they going to go? 
They were outside. They were ostracized. These four guys from the, from the inside of the city, there was no food for them unless they threw them a scrap over the top. Your liability is your greatest asset if, if it creates a hunger to succeed, a hunger to release God's power and to advance God's kingdom. Everybody's going to fall. Everybody's going to trip up. Everybody's going to have a setback. The real question is, are you going to get back up? Are you going to bounce back up? What are you going to do? No one wants to be status quo in life, in any part of their life. We are. Many parts of my life are status quo, and your parts are status quo. But you know what? We don't want to be status quo in the kingdom, do we? And nor does God want us to be. We want to be part of a great movement that God births, a, a movement of the Spirit of God. The problems we face in life, you see, are the key to our spiritual promotion. You know that every one of you have a spiritual authority to move and to access into situations in people's lives that no one else has? When you're faithful with it, God gives you a spiritual promotion, takes you to the new, next level so that you can speak greater words into someone's life. The lepers' uh, liability was evident. They were outcasts from society, forced to live outside the city, and they were vulnerable to the attack. The first guys to get killed were going to be the lepers. They're right there at the gate. But then again, they were in a position to move freely in the directions of God's opportunity. You know what? Sometimes we get ourselves so encumbered with stuff, we can't move when God says move. You know, Israel was an interesting kind of a group. If you go back and you look at them, they have this, this amazing tabernacle, and then Solomon builds this great temple, and they, were, they would sing this little song. You see it kind of almost in jest given to, by Jeremiah the prophet, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is here. And they would say it because the temple's here. God won't ever do anything to us. We're safe. And God said, you want, to, want me to show you how much I think about the temple? I'm just going to go ahead and send ba the Babylonians in, the Assyrians in, the Romans in. I'm going to let you burn it to the ground so you can figure out this is not about your stuff. It's about me. Isn't that, isn't that when you first came to Christ, if you know him, isn't that how you first came? You didn't care about anything else. You just fell in love with Jesus. You just rejoiced your sins were forgiven. And then all of a sudden, everything got complicated in Christianity. Never was supposed to be that way. You see, you have to position yourself to be ready when God moves, you move. People who are stuck rarely see the miracles of God. They are too tied to the familiar. You, you can experience a miracle, though. Look at with me in verse 8. It's, it's amazing when you start to unpack this little section here. You experience a miracle when, watch this, you enjoy it thoroughly. Verse 8. You know what they did? They ate and they drank. That was the miracle. They just said, you know what? This is a good time to eat. We've been hungry. Let's sit down and drink. And Oh, we're going to go over here and get a little gold, a little silver. They enjoyed the miracle that God gave them. And then look at verse 9. They examined their heart. They said, you know what? It's not right for us to do this. When God brings a miracle in your life, you always have to go, what's the right thing to do about the miracle God's unfolding in my life? Who can I bless with this miracle that God has given me? And then, verse 10, you've got to retell the miracle. They went back into town. They said, hey, we've got to tell you about the miracle. They rehearsed the great things of God. And you know why they could do that? Because they came to the place of nothingness. Leonard Ravenhill put it like this. He said, the only time you can really say that Christ is all I need is when Christ is all you have. It's all I have. 
You can be rich and say that. You can be poor and say that. But if you're going to walk with God, you have to be able to say that. It's not about your zip code. It's not about your bank account. It's about your heart. Christ is all I have. That's all I have. Let me show you this third great thought, and that is it only takes one voice to move a city. It only takes one voice to move a city. Look at verse 13. And one of his servants answered and said, the king and everyone else were skeptical about the miracle that had happened. And yet this one voice said, wait a minute, let's listen to what these lepers have to say. Let's listen to the word from the people that are, we have discounted, we have not cast our eyes upon, that we have not helped, that we have actually hated their presence. When a man's ways are right with God, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him, the Bible says. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord move to and through across the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. No good thing, good thing have I withheld from them that walk uprightly, says the Lord. God wants to do something in every one of our lives. I love the passage in Daniel 11.32. It says, But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do great exploits. You know, knowing God comes in levels, doesn't it? You can say, oh yeah, I know him, and what that means is I know his name. You can say, I know him, and I've known him for 20 years. You can say, I know him, and I know everything about him. You see, it's, it's the idea is that there, is the, there are these degrees of knowing God, and as I know God in a greater way, what happens is my ability to understand his ways, to access his power, and to walk in his way becomes greater and greater through the years. And I can then do great exploits, it says. Have you ever noticed how the weak spread weakness like a fire and it destroys? That's what the weak do. But the strong, they spread strength like energy that imparts strength to all. God's command is for us to be strong, and the promise is that we will do great exploits. Every command of God, if you'll study them, carries with them a promise that is tied to a purpose. Every command of God comes with a promise that's tied to a purpose. God doesn't bless you for no purpose. God doesn't give you something and say, here, so you can enjoy it. No, there's a purpose tied in it, a divine purpose, a divine plan. The Bible is a supernatural book, and it turns on the miraculous. It confuses and confounds the wise by its bold expectation of faith. And God simply declares, the people who know their God, they will do great exploits. We rise to a new level of power and spiritual authority when we take God at his word. What do you say, I'm going to do that, God? People say, you're stupid. It doesn't make sense. Do you realize the Bible, I love to say this, it is, a, it is a book full of crazy people who trusted God. Just think about it. God says to Noah, go build a boat. It's going to rain. It never rained up till that point. What's a boat? It's stupid. It is. Find somebody in there. Find a normal story in this book. You know, like the story, you know, that would make a horrible movie. You know, the story is, well, this guy, you know, he married his high school sweetheart, and they got married, and they had three kids, and he worked the same job for 50 years. He retired and uh, had a comfortable end of the life and then died. 
And you watch that movie and you go, <gasps> but now let's insert something in there. This guy is the model citizen. In fact, maybe he was even a church-going guy. And he's been stealing money from his company for the last 30 years. And he's been setting up a counterfeit press over in Europe. And when on the day he retires, he waves everybody goodbye and tells his wife he'll meet her at the airport and you never see him again until the last 10 minutes when the wife finds him. And she sets him on fire with all his counterfeit money. <laughs> now we got a story. Right? Well, the Bible's like that. It's just drama layered upon drama. It's a supernatural work of God. And we rise to this new level because what happens is victory turns into greater victory. And we understand that one voice can move a whole city. You see, people of faith are people of action. You know what I've really loved is people have taken this name influence and they've used it in a marvelous way. They just go out and tell people. They're just influencing people. You know, there's tools of influence. You just walk through a grocery line and there's all these magazines and you don't know if they're true or not. You know, I, I especially like the star and some of those things. You read and you go, oh, is that true? And I was in line the other day and somebody's looking at it and says, well, you look at that. Do you believe that? And I go, I believe every word of that. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, and I believe the Bible, too. This guy goes, what? I go, yeah, what, do you believe the Bible? I don't know. I just want to know if Angelina Jolie's getting a divorce. That's all I want to know. <laughs> We're in the checkout line. Yeah, I believe the Bible. Do you believe the Bible stories? And he goes, I don't know. I've never thought about it. I said, well, you ought to think about it. You're reading this stuff. You ought to read the Bible. He checked out quickly. influence. Whoever thought the National Enquirer would be your tool of influencing people for God? Your tools are everywhere. The power of one voice. You know, your testimony is a highway to your divine calling. Let me say that again. Your testimony is a highway to your divine calling. Write this scripture down. Revelation 19.10, it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When you have a testimony of Jesus, you know what you're doing? You're speaking a prophetic word into someone's life that can change the course of their entire destiny. Do you ever think about yourself as being a destiny-changing person? An influencer of your world of influence? When you do not walk in a prophetic word, you lose sight of his supernatural power and you begin to think it's all about you and not about him. I know me pretty well and there's not much good that comes out of me apart from him. One man said, if a man can stand himself, he can stand an awful lot. Because you really know yourself. Second thing I want you to see, the power of one voice is risk is necessary for every great move of God. Show me somebody in here who didn't take a risk just took something. It just was risky stuff. Risk creates an atmosphere and, a, and an expectation of faith in your life. If I, if I get out on the edge, I've got to say, God, you've got to come through or I look like an idiot for trusting you. You know, I think some reason that people don't tell you what they're trusting God for because they're afraid God won't come through. 
I'd rather be a fool in trusting God for something great than look respectable in the sight of man and be a fool before God. Haven't we got enough people that just really don't trust God? In this world full of it? Just full of people like that. Here's the third thing. Everything begins and ends on the word of the Lord. Remember Elijah, he comes up and he says, hey, uh, you know, God's going to, you know, close up the heavens. You're not going to eat. The watchman says, hey, if God opened up the windows of heaven, this is not going to happen. He says, well, he's going to do it and you're going to die. That's basically what he said. It's going to happen and you're not going to eat from it. And what happens there in verse 16 is the people, the, they open the gates and they say, free food. Kind of like a church dinner. Everybody shows up for free food, Right? Free food, and they rush out there. The man who's standing there, like, you know, I got it all figured out. He gets trampled to death. Everything begins and ends on the word of the Lord. Let me give you some life applications. Here's the first one. Famine, I don't care what kind it is in your life. Emotional, physical, spiritual, mental, it creates a new destiny. If you'll allow it. It creates a new destiny. You just let yourself get short of something and see how creative you get. You see how powerful your prayers become. You ever notice how good you can pray in a crisis? I am the best prayer in the world in a crisis. How about you? I mean, I can stand my knees longer than I ever thought I could when I'm in crisis. When I'm not in crisis, my knees start hurting in 30 seconds. Lord, my knees hurt. Could I stand up and talk to you? Be all right? Closer to you? All that kind of stuff. Here's a second life application. Why settle for status quo in your spiritual life? Why? Why why would you go, I'll take that. That's nice. I just want to be kind of a good Christian. What is that? You ever notice nobody in the Bible is called a good Christian? They're called spiritual. They're called carnal. I'm either walking with God, I'm not. I mean, filled with the Spirit, I'm not filled with the Spirit. There's not a whole lot in between. It's just, you're walking with God. I'm sold out to Jesus or I'm not. And if I'm not one of those two, then I don't know Christ. Three categories of men and women in Scripture, spiritually speaking. Supernatural, carnal, and natural. Here's a third life application. Believe this or not, God is bigger than your circumstances. Oh, you don't know my circumstances. Well, check out God. Just check out God and see if he's not bigger than your circumstances. You know what I think? I think every one of us in this room tonight needs a miracle. I really believe that. I believe everyone in this room needs a miracle of some kind. And I believe God wants to bring some kind of a miracle to everyone. Whether it's tonight, next week, or next year. I think God wants to work in our life. You've got to trust God. Why not trust Him for something big? Why not just trust Him for something big? I want us to take a minute, and I'm going to... I'm going to pray and I want you to um, I want you to just think God what is it the miracle I need tonight what is it I need to see you do in my life tonight not somebody else you say well you know my friend on the end of the aisle no 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 just what do I need God you to do in my life tonight it might not seem like that big a thing for you but it is a big thing because you thought of it just now I want you to just commit that to God right now and say God I don't even know how to trust you my faith may be small But God, I don't want to live a status quo life. I don't want to live apart from seeing great things happen in my life. I think God wants to do that tonight.
Let's pray. Maybe you'd want to pray a prayer something like this one. Dear Jesus, I need a miracle. Mine may seem small when compared to others, but I need a miracle. I need you to touch my life tonight. I need you to answer this question. I need you to do something that can only be ascribed to God. My faith is small. God, I know it's, it does feel like a mustard seed. And God, I haven't seen a lot of your miracles in my life, God, but I want to be in a position to see your hand in my life. God, the, the mountain that is in front of me is my miracle I'm looking for. I ask you, God, to take that miracle and realize it in such a way that I can only give you credit for it. And God, when you start to work in my life and when you complete that work in my life, God, let me be faithful with the testimony of Christ and the prophecy of Jesus. I love you, Lord, and I give you praise in your name.